recently in my ninth grade English class, we utilized a short story called The Sniper. And within that short story, there's a sniper on a roof and he's in a civil war that's going on in Ireland and he's in a particular situation and he's able to overcome the person of interest, the informant, and he's a bit nervous and he's not sure if there's another threat. And so he decides to take the risk and light up a cigarette. But just at the little bit of a spark, bullet flashes over his head and he realizes, indeed, there is another threat. So then it becomes about trying to overcome that other sniper on the other roof. And so through the course of the story, he eventually is able to set a trap and kill the other sniper. And then when he's trying to escape, there's some machine gun fire. He's able to escape, but it puts him down in proximity to the sniper that he had killed that had fallen off the roof. And so he's curious. So he turns the head over and gets his brother. And so in the course of the story, of course, we talk about irony, but one of the themes that we hit on is just the recklessness of war. And that's something that the students can't relate to necessarily very intimately. But from there, we're able to move into a couple other examples that do register much more intimately. Ultimately, we'll, we'll come there. But within life, there are, of course, certain things that are out of our control that make our life seem reckless at times, that rain havoc in our lives and chaos. But what's very unfortunate is when the things that we do control, we allow those things to produce recklessness in our life. I want to bring us to the scriptures now. Let's consider Saul for a moment. You know, if you come into Acts chapter 7, verse 58, we, of course, are reading about the story of the stoning of Saul, or Stephen, I mean, and there we see the garments that are laid down at the feet of this young Saul, and we see that he approved as we come into chapter 8. We also read about this great persecution that was against the church in Jerusalem, and in verse 3 of chapter 8, that Saul was ravaging the church. Coming into chapter 9, we see that Saul's still breathing out threats, and murder. Of course, here he's a young man. That may or may not be an important characteristic to what we're looking at here, but we do know that humans have a tendency to conform to their environment. Whether we're talking about the environment of the home, the neighborhood, school, the workplace, we have a tendency to kind of flock together and we feel that pressure to do the same, to be the same. Makes me think about a trivial thing from my life which was a, a microcosm for what we see on a much grander scale. When I was in ninth grade, you know, I loved sports growing up. Uh, so there's certain teams and athletes that I liked. And Sean King was a rookie that was playing for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, wore that number 10. And statistically, he has a great season. I played that position. So I think I got the jersey for Christmas, wore it to school. And there was this senior that I knew through some relationships or something. But he said something. You know, kind of like putting me down for wearing a jersey to school, right? I felt the pressure to conform, right? Oh, I could just dress like he dresses, and then no one will say anything to me, or at least he won't, right? In that situation right there, that's the microcosm that works on such a grander scale and in all areas of life, that pressure to conform. Be like your environment. Be like the people around you. But that, of course, can be very problematic especially for us that are striving to walk that path of life. 
I mean, think about Saul again. Did he just trust the leaders around him and what they were saying about Jesus? Or do you think he made a personal inquiry? Do you think he investigated Jesus? Did he go and have that conversation by night like Nicodemus? I don't know. But it would seem he might have trusted in his, you know, even maybe his mentor, Gamaliel. Because it would seem that he did not draw the correct conclusion prior to his experience on the road to Damascus. So I could say Saul at that point in his life was very reckless with things that he could control. And it produced chaos and havoc that not only affected him, but affected those around him. Now let's, as we kind of draw this closer to ourselves, let's come to the book of Ephesians. We're coming to Ephesians. Now here, that same man, now we would call him Paul, as he's gone out into the greater world among the Greeks, he is trying to help communicate to these Christians here at Ephesus that despite the attractiveness of the world, entertainment, the pleasures all around them, that as Christians, that they need to understand, that we need to understand that the blessings that we have in Christ, as an identity in Christ and being transformed from this former state, these are tremendous blessings that we don't want to lose and that we should value enough so that we, we're not reckless, so that we don't live in a way so as to lose these blessings. Let's look at a couple of verses here that speak to this former state. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, I love that phrase, but God, right? He made us alive together in Christ. Carrying into verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Right? That's a former state. In chapter 1, as he begins the letter, helping them understand this identity, you are saints. And saints, faithful. Right? You see the coordinating conjunction and. Right? As saints, we are faithful. That's an essential inherited characteristic of being a saint. But you're chosen, you were predestined for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Redemption, forgiveness of sins, and we are heirs. We have obtained an inheritance, and we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have tremendous blessings, and there's tremendous value in that identity walking in Christ. We can't forget these things. And so with these on our mind, let's come a little further in the letter, come to chapter 4, verse 1. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators as God, of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse 15 of the same chapter, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And that, that brings me to the phrase, the title of the lesson, 
the carefulness of discipleship. Now, if you come back to the beginning of chapter 4, there's these certain characteristics that we want to walk with. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And of course, in our discipleship, we ought to be diligent to put these characteristics on. It's critical. But as we come back to chapter 5, verse 1, walk in love. Chapter 4, verse 17, he writes, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, and to know the love of Christ, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So the point trying to drive into us is that without love, our discipleship is a fraud. We cannot be disciples of Jesus unless we manifest the love with which he loved us. So now as we come to chapter 5, let's look at those first 15 verses and, and see what Paul has put before us. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Do not participate in sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness. No filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. Right? Very interesting instruction to me. So I asked the question, are there any consequences for such behavior? In verse 5, we see it. We can lose our inheritance in the kingdom of God. And it just strikes me. Wow. Certainly, if you think about what we had just looked at as far as we're saints and we're faithful, we're chosen, we're predestined to adoption to himself as sons through Jesus. We have redemption. We've been redeemed. That large stack of bills, you know, equated to sins that we could never pay has been paid. We have forgiveness of our sins and fellowship with God, we have this great inheritance, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. We have all these things in Christ, but we can lose it. And that's scary. Now, as you continue to look in verse 14, Paul will call them to repentance. Those that are actually doing these things that are out of place. He says these things are out of place for the saint. And those that are practicing these things that could lose that inheritance, he quotes Isaiah. And I love what awake, awake, oh sleeper. It reminds me of Frost that said, I'm not a teacher, I'm an awakener. And that makes so much sense with us humans because you know how we can just kind of, we can fall asleep. Awake, repent, awake, oh sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Maybe that's me this morning. I need to wake up, right? I need to repent. But let's come back to just a few of those simple instructions. I say simple, but just no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. To me, that's just that's an interesting, interesting instruction. Calls me to stop and think and meditate on that instruction. That's out of place as far as my tongue to speak foolishness or filthiness or the crude joking. So coming back to the sniper with my students in class, you know, the recklessness of war doesn't hit home very closely. 
but then I can talk about the recklessness of driving outside the law, and, and kind of, but they're ninth graders. So they're only practicing driving with their parents. But yet they still see some of the consequences because they probably know people that have either had serious wrecks or maybe even people that have died. But then the one that hits all of us in the room is the recklessness of the tongue. And y'all should see their faces, you know, when we make that point. It's like, oh yeah, we can all relate to the recklessness of the tongue, right? And so we talk about this being out of place as far as the filthiness and foolishness and the crude joking. So we should ask them, well, what's, what's in place, right? And so it says thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. Hmm. We have plenty to be thankful for. We think about even just the beginning of the letter to the Ephesians. All those blessings, those things that we have, the inheritance to come, all those things. Plenty to be thankful for. So it's always appropriate to be thankful. And then as far as the tongue, that filth, that foolishness, that's never appropriate. Never appropriate. So let's think about some of the instructions from James. If you'll come with me to James chapter 3, and we know as we begin the chapter, within the context, he's speaking of them becoming teachers and incurring stricter judgment, right? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and then he draws specifically unto the tongue, which of course can apply in our conduct, all of our conduct as Christians. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse. Curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So, of course, as James speaking on the volatility of the tongue, Ports us to the wisdom of God within chapter 3, verse 17. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And then back towards the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. So why should we give great attention to the tongue? And Proverbs 15.4 is where my thoughts were drawn. A gentle tongue is a, a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. I know within my life and you too, 
you've experienced both sides of the tongue, the blessing and the curse. I know how it's affected me. And as you meditate on those things throughout your life, you can remember how it's affected you or maybe how it's affecting you now, the blessing and the curse, depending on what's going on. But the bottom line is I know what kind of person I want to be. I know what kind of person you want to be. I know what kind of impact that I want to have on the people around me. I know the faith that I have and the faith that I desire to continue to walk in. I know that I want my life to continue to be hidden in Christ. I know that I want to be like Christ. I want to be a blessing. I want to shine his light. I want to be able to put that lamp up there on that lampstand. I want to let it shine. I don't want to put a basket over that lamp. I want to make sure that people can associate me with a tree of life. I want to be that kind of blessing. And I know you too. I want people to be able to take refuge with me. I want people to be able to imitate me as I imitate Christ. I want people to be able to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ through a relationship that we have manifested together and going to the word and working together in the word and then God being able to deliver them because of our work that we did together. I want to be able to do those things. I look out into the future and I see myself but a better version of myself, right? And I want to strive for that. And because of that, I know how important it is the taming of the tongue. Right? Because James said it, it ought not to be so, right? As far as using the tongue as a curse, right? It's out of place, as Paul wrote, in regard to the filthiness, the foolishness, the crude joking. To use our tongue like that is out of place for the saint. It ought not to be so. And if we come back to Proverbs 15 4, you see the contrast there, right? The gentle tongue, it's a tree of life. Whereas the perverseness can break the spirit. You see the two paths drastically, drastically different. So just for a very short period of time, just want to direct us in what I would call my arsenal of, of training. Because the tongue is one of those things you can't just wake up and think that it's going to fall in place by accident. Y'all know how that goes. The tongue will be tossed about. And all of a sudden these things that we don't want to say, they sometimes get out, right? It's that whole thing that Paul writes about, about the war of the flesh. Sometimes I do what I don't want to do, right? But I think with intentional habits or training, things that we bring into our life, I know that we can bring that thing under to a great degree of control, right? So with any successful training, so to speak, there's a plan. And then the execution of the plan. And so just looking at the first part comes back to thankfulness. Remember, that's directly from Paul's writings. So instead of those things as far as the filth, the foolishness, the crudeness, he said, let there be thanksgiving, right? That's interesting instruction. But I have found that just bringing that into my prayers and making that an emphasis helps shape my attitude, right? So just being intentional about talking and, and talking to God about the things that I'm, I'm thankful for and then letting that in the morning shape the attitude and then carrying that attitude throughout the day and then speaking. I mean, if you read Paul's letters, he expresses thankfulness often for his brothers and sisters. 
You know, he is genuinely concerned for their well-being in Christ. And so in his prayers and in his writings, their thankfulness permeates. And so bringing that into my own life, speaking thankfulness to the people around me, and if it regards writing, then writing thankfulness and making that a regular part of my life. And so the bottom line right, is that making a commitment to thankfulness, it's that serious, right? Being married to it, it's that serious. I'm committed to thankfulness. And so when there's thankfulness, the other thing that's out of place will truly be out of place for me and for you. Now, the second part of this, the wisdom of God, when I look at this, I think about the long-term dedication that has to be there for us to be able to absorb the wisdom of God and for it to take that application in our lives. It's not something that can be infused or gained in a moment, but it's something that cries out in the streets that's obtainable and accessible, but we have to continually seek that wisdom. And I think if we have that understanding that a long-term dedication is what's required to let it grow, because it will grow like a tree, just gradually over time to those who are diligent, then we can obtain to it and we can grow in it but we have to be willing to, uh, to reject status quo. We have to be willing as far as that natural pressure within our environments, whether that's the home, depending on what phase of life you're in, or whether that's at work or the community or wherever you find yourself, we have to be willing and able to reject that status quo around us and dedicate ourselves to the absorption of God's wisdom and understanding that it is a gradual process and that we will grow like a tree, we have to persevere in it. We have to be persistent and continue to take it in. And what I've seen is that over time, there's these breakthroughs where it's like you gain that little knowledge or that understanding or that insight. And it's like God allows you through time and through these experiences to have those breakthroughs. And you can honestly think to yourself and saying, I am, I'm growing in wisdom and I can see the fruit of it in my life. But only the diligent, I believe, will have those breakthroughs. It makes me think about one of my favorite Kobe Bryant stories. This comes back to when he was about 10 or 11 years old and he was participating in a very prestigious summer league. So this is not like chaos or, you know, park and rec. There's some good ball players in this league. His dad played in this league growing up, but Kobe did not score a single point the whole summer. And so the interviewer was a little bit surprised. Like, he's like, what, you're not getting to play? Or like, what's the deal? He's like, no, I'm playing. He was like, I just was garbage. Like, there was no, like, I got lucky. There was no free throw. Like, I scored no points. I was devastated at the end of the summer. His father talked to him and said, look, son, whether you score zero or 60, I love you the same. So Kobe said that was important. He understood that, hey, failure is okay. But he said in his heart, he didn't want to score zero. He wanted to score 60. And at that point, he said he kind of understood that this was going to be a long-term thing. He wasn't going to be better than those other guys overnight. And so the concept of the idea of that famous work ethic started to manifest itself. And eventually it was, you know, two to three hours of extra work a day, 
and he went on from there. But he said the idea, the concept that this is a long-term thing that he was going to have to dedicate to you know, himself too is when that's when he first understood that and that's my understanding of wisdom too we can continue to grow like a tree right you think about jesus teaching about that mustard grain the seed of the mustard grain how small it is but it can grow to become you know great heights and great breadth but that's going to be a, a slow process so a dedication to the wisdom of god and absorbing it and letting god manifested in our lives through our lives and then finally and this comes back actually to chapter 5 within ephesians if you come back and look at verse 15 when it's talking about walk carefully this is trailing off of walking carefully verse 17 as far as understanding what the will of the lord is and so i think this has everything to do with perspective so just thinking about like using this, the illustration of Abraham when God told him to sacrifice his son Isaac, you know, we're blown away by that story. But one of the things that I took away from that one time when I was listening to a person teach on it was that as parents, in a form, we have to be willing to sacrifice our children too. We have to be willing to sacrifice them in a sense that I can't take my child and try to form them into what I want. That would not be wise. Right, And if we come back to what we're talking about as far as the tongue, you could imagine a scenario where a father was trying to form the child into what he wanted. And you could imagine some of the things that would be said through those days that could be quite harsh. I remember one time listening to Des Bryant talk, and it was a thing on fathers. And he's like, you can't sit there and yell at your child and curse at your child before they go to bed at night and think that they're going to sleep well. You can't wake up in the morning and yell at them before they go to school and expect them to have a good day. And so he was talking about the way that we talk to our sons. And he's talking about the importance of the encouraging word and helping put love into them and helping them have confidence and building them up. And I see that here when we're trying to force our child into something that God did not design them to be, but it's because it's our desire, that's where that provoking is going to come to and we start to damage that spirit. And it comes back to Proverbs 15, 4, the perverseness, how it can break the spirit, right? But if we understand God's will, right, we look at our child or we look at life trying to understand God's will, that's going to help us use the tongue effectively in a way that's pleasing to God and in a way that will help not only ourselves but the child or those around us and you can come back to the illustration with the child and trying to help them grow up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and using our tongue to facilitate that process and the way that that's going to help the child grow and become what God wants them to be and how that will make them whole on the inside as only God can do, right? But if we're trying to force something that God doesn't want, it's going to be destructive. And that's what we can see with the tongue. When we use the tongue in the way that pleases God, how we can fill up, how we can be a blessing. But then if we're using the tongue contrary, how it can break the spirit, how it can be a curse. And so as far as the arsenals of training, it's a commitment the instruction that we're able to glean from God as far as thankfulness, the absorption of the wisdom of God, and seeking to understand God's will and keep that perspective as we go about trying to bring 
control to our tongue and use it to please God and to be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your good attention and my prayer is that this will bring fruit into our homes, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our community, and of course, within the body of Christ. Now, if there be any among us this morning that need the prayers of their brothers and sisters, I know at this point, a lot of times we kind of get into the motions, and, but if they're truly, if you're struggling, you should not go another moment. Reach out to someone today. I know it takes courage, but you need to do that. And you have brothers and sisters here that love you and want to help bear your burden. We're instructed to do so, and we want to help you. If there be any here that have been wayward, you've been walking your path, you've been walking and living your desire, and you're ready to repent, you're ready to wake up and get off the path of destruction and yield with humility to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The water's ready. Forgiveness is at your fingertips. Take courage. Come as we stand and sing. In Catholic.